The Kissel Boys were born and raised in what we used to think of as the quintessential American family, like something you'd watch on some wholesome sitcom. They were as competitive as they were ambitious, and those qualities would take both brothers on their very own unique, successful journeys in life. But the younger of the two, Robert, he always seemed to have a bit of an edge on older brother Andrew. He was taller, more athletic, more popular, more social. He was friendly. Things simply came easier to him. Robert was the brother who followed the rules. He maneuvered life wisely, cautiously, thoughtfully. Andrew preferred the quick and easy, the fastest way to winning, even if it wasn't exactly the right way. It didn't matter because getting to the finish line first was the only thing that mattered. The irony is the manner in which both of these brothers would come to meet an equally tragic end. Three years and thousands of miles apart in ways and for reasons that to this day remain mysterious and nearly impossible to reconcile. This is a special vacation series presentation of California Dreaming, the tale of the Kissel family curse. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this multi-part series entitled The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. This is a vacation series. The story takes place partly in the northeastern part of the United States and partly in Hong Kong. This case was recommended to me several times by listener Nate B., who also sent me a book entitled A Family Cursed by Kevin McMurray. I am reading the book as we are going along here, but also referencing a few articles online, particularly a 2006 article in New York Magazine about this story. This is the second part of this multi-part series. If you have not listened to episode 183, which is part one, you'll want to pause this here, listen to that one first, and then come back to this. Or you might want to wait until all parts have dropped so you can binge, binge, binge the whole thing. Either way, just know that I will bring you the entire story eventually, but I am doing it as quickly as I can. We left off last time with the relationship between the younger of the Kissel brothers, Robert, and the problems that he was having with his wife, Nancy, who had been carrying on an affair with their home security technician that they had hired a couple years back, a guy by the name of Michael Del Priori. We went into great detail how Mike ended up in that line of work and how he had been hired by the company that his brother had founded. But because he had started an illicit affair with one of their best clients, the brothers had a falling out over it and became estranged. Robert Kissel, who was living in Hong Kong, usually was with his family, but he had been there by himself while his wife and kids came back to the United States during the 2003 SARS outbreak. And that is when Nancy had taken her affair with Mike to the next level. We left off with Robert Kissel hiring a private investigator named Frank Shea, and then Robert eventually doing his own investigation into whatever it was his wife was doing behind his back by way of installing spyware onto their home computer. And we finished up part one with Robert confiding in his private investigator turned friend that he believed his wife was slipping him some kind of substance that was causing him to really get kind of loopy and pass out. 
Also, dreamers, please listen after the end of this episode for a promo from one of our good friends of the show, Mike Morford. Morph, you know him from Criminology and Murder in My Family and several other podcasts. And he has another one, unsurprisingly, called Missing Persons. You'll hear from him at the end of this story. Okay, so we're going to pick this up from where we left off. This is episode 184 of this vacation series multi-parter, The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse, Part 2. Before I delve back into where we had left off, I'm going to go back in time a little bit and give you some background information about the Kissel family for a little bit here. If you recall at the beginning of part one, I opened up with some information about the patriarch of the Kissel family. His name is William or Bill Kissel. I alluded to the fact that the Kissels had this sort of leave it to beaver kind of vibe going on, but I didn't go into much detail about how all of that came about. Bill Kissel had gone to college and studied chemistry. He eventually became a professor of chemistry at the University of Ohio, which was his alma mater. He was originally from Queens, New York, but ended up going away and attending college in Cleveland. After teaching at the university level for several years, he decided to take his talents into working for a corporation called Sun Chemicals, located in New Jersey. It was a step up and much, much better pay. The family of five initially resided in Manhattan while Bill Kissel worked across the river, but he eventually purchased a single family home in the city of Woodcliffe, New Jersey. Eventually, Bill decided that he wanted to launch his own company, and we could see where the Kissel boys got their ambition. So Bill started Synfax Manufacturing. What did they manufacture? Toner for copy machines, which obviously consists of various chemicals, and his company was an immediate success. As his company grew, so did the family home. They upgraded to a beautiful, spacious house located in Saddle River, New Jersey, which, according to McMurray's book, A Family Cursed, was the 13th wealthiest community in the country at the time. And one of Kissel's neighbors just so happened to be former President Richard Nixon. The one thing Bill believed that bonded a family together was picking an activity that would be their thing. And for Bill, the Kissel family thing would be skiing. Bill grew up skiing, and it was something that he wanted to instill in his children, and he wanted them to embrace it as well. And they did. Skiing was the pastime that the family did together year in and year out. And it was the skiing where it became apparent that the younger brother, Robert, really didn't have too much trouble keeping up pace with his older brother by almost three years. In fact, Robert hardly even had to work at it. He had this natural ability, no matter what sport he tried, he was just good. And he really gave his older brother, Andrew, a run for his money. And for Bill's part, their father, he expected nothing less than excellence when it came to his boys. He knew that they were smart, and he made sure he drove into them 
that they needed to take what they were gifted with and parlay that into a tremendously successful life for each one of them. Bill had done it on his own and he expected nothing less from his boys. And he pushed them and he pushed them hard to be as high achieving as they possibly could be. Anything less in his eyes would be a failure. While the family skied the best slopes in the world, the place that was special to the Kissel family was the place that Bill's boys would eventually purchase their coveted vacation homes at, Stratton Mountain, Vermont. The years that they spent there, the holidays, it was everything to the Kissels. It was one of the only things that Bill Kissel would find that he was able to hold on to once 2006 came around. The only things he had were the fondest of memories of skiing with his boys, his little girl, and his beloved wife. Those were the best times of his entire life, he would say. The best times of his life. Growing up, the older of the Kissel brothers, Andrew, he had a best friend named Dan. In looking back on his friendship with Andrew, one of the things that stood out most to him was Andrew's obsession with scale model classic cars. Andrew spent hours and hours painstakingly putting these models together to perfection. That was kind of his thing. It was what he was known for. Andrew was a perfectionist when it came to crafting things with his hands. But one of the quirky things about Andrew was he kind of always had his head in the clouds. And it was in stark contrast to his younger brother, Robert, who was pretty solidly grounded, really in touch with what was going on at all times. He was checked in. He was alert, aware, smart, and quick. Robert grew to be several inches taller than Andrew. He was certainly more athletically inclined, and he attracted many, many more girls than Andrew ever did. While Andrew was intelligent and bright, he was a bit more withdrawn than Robert. He kept to himself. He was socially awkward at times. He always, always wanted to please people, and he worked hard at it as best he could. And like I had said in part one, it's almost always usually the younger brother that is trying to keep up with the older brother. But in this case, it was the other way around. And Andrew's best friend, Dan, noticed it too. He always noticed that Robert would take some initiative to do something. And before long, his older brother, Andrew, was copying what his little brother was doing. And just to demonstrate how different the boys were and how it would all manifest itself later on in life, Andrew's best friend, Dan, recalled a thing that Bill Kissel did for his boys. When each of them turned 16, Bill offered first Andrew and then a couple of years later, Robert. He offered them his credit card and told them that they could buy themselves one thing and it could be anything that their heart desired, but just one thing. Now, oddly in the book, A Family Curse, the author puts the brothers as being four years apart in age. But from the birthdays that I found on each of them, they were only a little more than two and a half years apart. Now, I did have a little bit more of a challenge finding Robert's birthday for some reason, but I did find it to be April 21st, 1962. But because it was difficult to find, perhaps that birthday isn't accurate, but that's what it says on findagrave.com. 
because two and a half years is a lot different than four years. But anyway, the dynamic between them was what it was with Big Brother finding himself in Little Brother's shadow. So anyway, when Andrew turned 16, he got daddy's credit card and he actually arrived home wearing a fur coat. So he was born in 1959, so he would have turned 16 in 1975. So yeah, fur coats were all the rage, right? Well, however many years later, when Robert turned 16, he got daddy's credit card and he went to Sears and got himself a new pair of sensible shoes. So that kind of gives you a glimpse into each of the Kissel boys. And it is very telling of how each of them saw the world and what was important to them. Even their father, Bill, could see how life's journey was going to be very, very different for each of his boys. His younger son, Robert, he was everything a father could have dreamed of in terms of having a son. Everything Robert immersed himself in, he flourished and succeeded so effortlessly. It just came to him. He was like born programmed to win. But when it came to his older son, Andrew, he had a very meticulously creative side to himself. He had exquisite taste when it came to the finer things in life. But there was always just something holding him back from really ever getting to that finish line with ease. He always seemed to need to avoid or circumvent anything challenging, always preferring to take the path of least resistance. He just didn't have that extra bit of drive to push through when things got difficult. He wanted the easy way, the way that cost him the least effort, and that's just the way that it was always going to be. And Bill, he could see it. His son Andrew just lacked whatever it was that his brother Robert had that kept him driven and motivated and winning. As Andrew Kissel entered adulthood, the classic model cars were stowed away and Andrew began chasing the real thing. Every now and again, Andrew would pop up with a new classic car, usually a muscle car, and he could almost always be found working on the engine or shining his vehicle up. While Andrew was a pretty good student, he had just about zero interest in making education a priority. According to the book A Family Cursed, Andrew struggled to thrive in the classroom setting, and that can easily be tied back to his shy, introverted personality when he was young. When he got out of high school, there was no way he was going to be talked into enrolling in any more school voluntarily, so he went ahead and got on his dad's payroll at the toner company, Synfex Manufacturing. He worked for dad for about a year. However, at the age of only 19, Andrew ventured off into his own business that he set up in Mawa, New Jersey. I hope that's how it's pronounced. M-A-H-W-A-H. It was a car parts shop specifically dealing in accessories for four-wheel drive vehicles. Even though the shop was located on a busy stretch of highway, making it relatively visible, Customers weren't exactly stopping in, and the business floundered. Andrew had a deep love and passion for cars, but he simply wasn't able to parlay that into a lucrative business, and he ended up shuttering its doors in less than two years. Now, Bill and Elaine Kessel, mom and dad, 
They weren't exactly thrilled that Andrew had opted out of the college route. So you can imagine when he finally relented and decided to attend Fairleigh Dixon University or FDU, which was close enough for Andrew to continue to live at home and go to school. But there was still something about college that just wasn't grabbing Andrew. It was so dull to him. And he was absolutely disinterested, but he ended up going there for two unremarkable years. And I actually found it kind of interesting that Andrew felt so humdrum about school, yet he kept going. I don't know. Thinking back when I went to college, it wasn't exactly chock full of parties and friends and good times for me either. I went there because there were classes that I wanted to take and degrees that I wanted to earn. It wasn't like a fantastic time for me, but it was just a thing that I needed to do, a means to an end. Then I thought, I wonder if I sort of felt the same way about college. Like, what's the point, you know? Some of us kind of went to college just because it seemed like the thing to do. And then an even more interesting thing Andrew did was after two years at FDU, he went ahead and applied and was accepted to one of the costliest schools in the country, Boston University. In fact, in a May 2021 article on CBS.com, Boston University is currently ranked as the 42nd most expensive school in the United States. And just for a fun fact on that list, the most expensive college in the country currently is the University of Chicago, which will set you back $81,531 per year in order to attend. Anyway, interestingly enough, Andrew's parents weren't exactly on board in the beginning with footing the bill for such a pricey college when Andrew had been so apathetic about going in the first place. But he was able to convince his parents to pony up the cash for him to not only attend, but to pay for his room and board as well. And off he went. At least five years after high school when I did the math. So Andrew would have been about around the age of 23 going into his third year of school at Boston University. Now, something strange started to happen not too long after Andrew began attending classes at Boston University. And it was a thing his family really didn't quite understand. As soon as he went away to school, he all but stopped talking to his parents. Not completely, but sometimes several months would go by without a single phone call from Andrew. Now, we have to remember that by this time it was the early 80s. I did a rough estimate based on when he had graduated from high school, which would have been, I believe, 1977. He worked for dad for a year. Then he had the four-wheel drive business for two years. Then he went to FDU for two years, so that would take us to about 1982 or 83. So there would be no texting or internet or email or social media to keep tabs on family. You had to keep in touch by phone, and mom and dad just couldn't get a hold of him. Of course, this caused them to worry about what was going on with their son. So dad, in what I kind of thought was a strange move, he went ahead and procured the services of a private investigator to locate his son. However... There is little information as to what became of all that. As I researched, it just seemed like Andrew continued to maintain this shroud of secrecy around himself and his activities, and this would go on for pretty much the rest of his life. So from the information that I read, Bill Kissel would say that he really had no idea whether or not Andrew actually ever received a degree from Boston University. 
I kind of call BS on that nowadays, especially because it shouldn't be that difficult to find out the answers as to whether or not he graduated. And from all I can see, Bill Kissel is still very much alive. He is not listed as deceased on any of the family obituaries. So even by now, Bill Kissel should have been able to find the answers to these questions. I searched online, but I could not confirm whether or not Andrew got his bachelor's degree or not. And looking back at that time, it really wasn't all that difficult to fib on your resume or your job applications about stuff like this. And Andrew did indeed claim to have a bachelor's in communications from Boston University. A website that Andrew used to maintain, which I was unable to find, but on this website, he had a resume in which he said he was vice president at Shearson Lehman Brothers, and that was from 1989 to 1991. However, Shearson Lehman Brothers has publicly stated that they never had anyone working for the company by the name of Andrew Kissel. Bill Kissel, when asked about the truthfulness of his son's work history, refused to comment, but it seems as though dad really had no idea what was real and what wasn't anyway. And I get the feeling that dad really just didn't want to dig too deep. Maybe he just would rather stay in the dark. It's just easier to cope with, I guess. But that has us wondering why was Andrew so secretive when it came to what he was willing to share with his father? Now, his mom, Elaine Kissel, had passed away in 1989. I'll talk more about that a little later on. But people who knew Andrew were aware that his father was always viewing him as being sort of beneath or less than his younger brother, Robert. And in order to protect himself from the scrutiny and the criticism, Andrew distanced himself from his dad just so he would not be subjected to the constant comparisons to his brother. Because in Bill Kessel's eyes, Andrew was the brother who would forever be in second place. And in the Kessel home, if you weren't first, then you were a loser. In fact, Andrew would even go so far as to say he was constantly belittled and disparaged by his father because he was incapable of measuring up to his standards. So he turned away and he put up walls and he kept his father in the dark when it came to just about everything in his personal and professional life. And so it goes without saying, and you could have probably guessed, that younger brother Robert Kissel's college experience was vastly different than Andrew's. He went straight into the prestigious University of Rochester after high school with a plan perhaps to follow in his father's footsteps as a chemist. I said earlier that the school Andrew attended, Boston University, was ranked 42nd most expensive in the country today. On that same list, the University of Rochester is ranked 38th. So Robert didn't have to try hard to do well in school. It left plenty of room for his social life, which he certainly lived to the fullest. He joined a fraternity, he had more friends than he knew what to do with, and he partied extensively yet he still maintained a good academic standing. It was like the guy was genetically wired for success. It was that effortless. In 1986, Robert finished up school. He was awarded his bachelor's, but oddly enough, it was in optical engineering. 
And he really would not put it to use because he too went to work for his dad at Synfax Manufacturing. Following graduation, Robert and his family celebrated by going to Club Med in the Caribbean. And that is where Robert met Nancy, who was then Nancy Keishan. Nancy worked as a waitress in New York. She had skimped and saved in order to treat herself to the Caribbean vacation. It was pretty much love at first sight for Robert. And even dad approved. But to me, it did sound like it was all a little bit superficial. It was like Nancy was attractive and beautiful. And by those standards, for the Kissels, she was good enough for Robert. Because Nancy did not come for money. In the book, A Family Cursed, Nancy and her family were described as kind of like hippies. And her parents were divorced by 1970. Mom and Nancy were kind of like nomads who never really sat down any roots. Going from small town to small town, and her mom was earning money by doing craft work. And by 1987, Robert had proposed to Nancy, and she accepted. I do think it is important to keep in mind that Nancy really entered into their relationship empty-handed. Robert was the one who came from wealth, and he would go on to create his own wealth as well. So dreamers, in an interesting aside, Nancy had a best friend who actually became pretty well-known due to her very public battle with the AIDS virus. This was a woman named Allison Gertz. I had not heard of Allison before. Maybe some of you have. But there is a movie about her starring Molly Ringwald called The Allison Gertz Story, which was released in 1992. Allison had traveled to the Caribbean with Nancy, where she had ultimately met Robert Kissel. And it was not too long after the best friends got back to New York that Allison began suffering from chronic illnesses fever, diarrhea, and the like, and it was somewhat of a mystery as to what was causing her to be sick all the time. Allison was a heterosexual female, so at the time, what were considered high-risk groups, intravenous drug users, and homosexual men, Allison just didn't fall into those categories, but after a couple more weeks and further testing, it was revealed that she did have AIDS. Later on, Allison would discover how she contracted HIV. In 1982, she had a one-night stand with a bisexual bartender at Studio 54 that she had met, and he would end up passing away as a result of complications related to AIDS in 1988. Once Allison was diagnosed, she became an outspoken advocate Many of you remember the fear that the public had when it came to HIV and AIDS and people who were infected were shunned and stigmatized and marginalized. People were afraid to be near people who had HIV or AIDS. They didn't want them around. Children who were infected were not wanted in public schools. Because the public didn't have a clear and realistic understanding of how the disease is spread, Eventually, because of people like Allison, who worked tirelessly to squash the misconceptions about the disease, those myths subsided and the public slowly began to ease up on the fears of being close or around infected individuals. And what set Allison apart was the fact that she was a heterosexual female 
and that she wasn't an intravenous drug user. And it really shined a light on the fact that it wasn't exclusively a disease that afflicted gay men and drug users. It was a disease that could infect anyone. And at the time, it was a really important message to try to send and educate the public with. So Allison ultimately passed away from pneumonia complicated by AIDS on August 8th, 1992. She was only 26 years old. It was one of the earliest tragic events in Nancy's life. Allison was supposed to have been Nancy's maid of honor at her wedding to Robert, but she couldn't make it. She was just too sick. Another friend that Nancy had grown close to, especially after the death of Allison, was a woman named Bryna. She would end up being Nancy's maid of honor. The wedding date was set for May of 1989. Now, prior to Nancy experiencing the tragic loss of her own friend, the Kissel family was confronted with some devastating news of their own just after the new year of 1989. Just as the wedding preparations were in full swing, they were hit with it. Robert and Andrew's mother, Elaine, was diagnosed with cancer. It was inoperable, and it was rapidly terminal. The family was completely blindsided by Elaine's diagnosis and the grim prognosis, as everyone in the Kissel family was over the moon excited getting ready for the first of the Kissel children to get married. Bill Kissel had even offered to foot the bill for the entire event, giving his son and future daughter-in-law a budget of $100,000 to give themselves the wedding of their dreams. However, with the amount of time that Elaine Kissel was given to live, it was abundantly clear that she would not survive to see her first child get married. And this is where it is said the Kissel family got the very first inkling of the kind of person their son and brother Robert was marrying. Bill Kissel desperately wanted his wife to be able to partake in the wedding celebration. In fact, it would have meant the world to both of them, as it would be the last milestone Elaine would live to see in any of her children's lives. So Bill approached his son and his wife-to-be and asked if they could possibly move the wedding date up, perhaps to March instead of May, so Elaine could be there. But Nancy flat-out refused. Bill didn't push the issue. The wedding went on as planned in May. Elaine Kissel succumbed to her cancer in April. So dreamers, I'm curious about what you think about this. Nancy's refusal to consider an earlier wedding date in order to allow for the mother of the groom to be in attendance because she was not going to survive to the date that they had set. I mean, I'll admit I'm a little bit torn. I'm the type of person who would have bumped up the date in order to accommodate my future husband's mother. I just know that about myself because people are more important to me than dates. Personally, I think it was Robert who should have been the one to have that conversation with Nancy, not his father. And I think he should have possibly put his foot down. I mean, it's his wedding day, too. However, at the same time, I do understand that there are people that like what they like and they want what they want and they plan what they plan. And anything that veers from that causes them chaos and turmoil. Maybe Nancy had her heart set on that 
specific date. Maybe it was meaningful to her. I don't know exactly how Nancy responded to Bill's request to move the wedding date up. If she was kind of a bitch about it or if she was apologetic but firm. But how I see it, I think an exception could have been made for such an extraordinarily sad circumstance. And I am really curious what all of you think as well so we could talk about it on social media. By 1990, Robert, it seemed, found himself a bit more focused when it came to the direction he was wanting to head career-wise. Did Nancy have some say or influence on that? I don't know. I can't say for sure. Perhaps. But we know that he went to college, he graduated, and he had that degree that he really didn't seem to have any use for. He could have gone on and majored in anything and done well in it, but his college experience turned out to be just that, an experience. He did the frat thing, he did the party thing, he graduated, okay, then what? He went to work for his dad. He was young, and he just didn't seem to have a plan, but that's not uncommon, right? Lots of us hit college without any direction. I did that. I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. My first degree was in liberal arts. What the hell was I going to do with that? I'm pretty much convinced that if you major in liberal arts, you have no clue what you're going to do with your life. I'm just kidding. But that was just me. I had no idea. And in a weird way, it seemed like Robert was sort of in the same boat. But what set him apart is the fact that he could have chosen any major under the sun and excelled at it. It's like everything was on the table for him, so he could have had his pick and failure just wouldn't be in the cards. And I guess that could leave you just as directionless as the student who struggles with every single subject, if that makes any sense. Robert was the type of person who could do it all, so he didn't know what to do. I mean, optical engineering, that is what his bachelor's was in. I didn't even know what that was, so I looked it up. And according to synopsis.com, optical engineers make use of optics to solve problems and to design and build devices that make light do something useful. Okay, then. I still don't know what that means, but it seems like a really obscure and rando thing for Robert to have picked, which is probably why a couple of years later, it's back to the drawing board. He's married now. It's time to do something anything useful at that point. After working for dad for a couple of years, Robert announced that he wanted to delve into the world of finance. So he was headed to graduate school, majoring in business at the Leonard Stern School of Business at New York University. And of course, Robert was an excellent high achieving student and his professor definitely saw something special in the young up and comer. So much so that Robert was selected by one of his professors as his graduate associate. He was offered the job as a researcher as he finished up his final year in business school. So not only would Robert be earning money, some of his tuition would be subsidized, and he would pretty much have his pick of jobs once he graduated. Perfect. Robert accepted the professor's offer. And then... Just about a month or so before Robert was set to graduate, he didn't even have to go looking for a job. Robert had proven to be such a valuable asset, someone who was destined to be going places in the world of finance and on Wall Street, that his professor slash boss actually reached out to one of his colleagues and told him, I've got this student. He's about to hit the ground running on Wall Street. I'm telling you, listen to me. You better snatch this guy up. 
And with that, Robert walked right out of commencement and into the workforce. Robert Kissel was a force to be reckoned with. Everything he worked on, he was laser focused. He never, ever let his emotions guide him. His work was completely guided by his intuitiveness and his intellect. He was next level compared to almost everyone else around him in the office and on the trading floor. Yet, he was somewhat of an average, unassuming guy. Lots of finance guys are kind of flashy. They have expensive suits. They have sparkly watches and shiny cars. But Robert, the flashiest thing about this guy was his intelligence and his work ethic. He was so driven and he really didn't need to be because everything this guy touched turned to gold. Robert didn't socialize a whole lot with coworkers and colleagues. And that can be attributed to him always being so focused on his work that everyone around him opted to just give him his space and let him do his thing. Every once in a while, he'd link up with a buddy or two, hang out, maybe play some video games, have a bit of easygoing conversation, but nothing over the top. It was just the kind of guy that Robert was. And Robert, he didn't have an enemy in the world. It was actually not possible to dislike the guy. There was just something about him. And if you knew him, you liked him, you respected him. And even if you tried, you just couldn't hate the guy. It goes without saying that as Robert rose in the ranks, he grew quite successful and quite wealthy. But it didn't change who he was as a person at his core. He was appreciative and he was grateful for being able to live very comfortably, but he still was never that flashy guy, never over the top. The money just didn't impact him in that way. His wife, Nancy, however, she loved it. She was all about the wealth, all about the money, all the things that she had ever dreamed of having, she made come true. And Robert was all too happy to give Nancy anything and everything her heart desired. And before long, she was making all of these extraordinary renovations on the home that they lived in. She drove luxury cars. She draped herself in fur coats. And she was always dripping in diamonds and jewels. Nancy Kissel was a very, very materialistic woman, and she had no shame about it. One time, a neighbor complimented Nancy on a fur coat that she was wearing. And Nancy replied something along the lines of, yes, yes, it is. Take a good look because you'll never in your entire life be able to afford anything like it. At that point, Nancy had garnered a reputation in the neighborhood of being one spoiled bitch. While there were glimmers of Nancy's benevolence and generosity when it came to helping friends and being there for people when they were in need, there was this one personality quirk that some took notice of that was kind of off-putting. I guess the best way to describe it would be to say that Nancy had like an off switch of sorts. She had this ability to flip any feelings or emotions she may have had completely off, like a machine. It was chilling. Anyone who got to see this hardened, cold side of Nancy. If she decided she no longer wanted to have anything to do with a particular person, she had this way of being able to expel that person from her life, like full stop, no questions asked, that person is out and will never ever be 
coming back into Nancy's life in any way, shape, or form, period, the end. And she could do it without hesitation, without question, and without feeling. And it could sometimes be without any real reasons either. And there was just simply no way of understanding it. There are people that Nancy did this to, and all they could do was sit there and scratch their heads. Like, what just happened here? It was as if they never existed to Nancy, and they would never exist to her again. As I told you in part one of the series, Robert ended up being offered a plum job for Goldman Sachs that would take him and his growing family to the other side of the world, Hong Kong. His base salary was $175,000 annually, but with bonuses, he would be easily making upwards to five or six million dollars a year. And the apartment they rented in that expat community that I talked about, that was comped by the company too, so that wasn't even coming out of his pocket. I'm not going to get into the finer details of what Robert did for a living, but I will say is that his work had to do with dealings involving distressed debts. I'm kind of a dummy when it comes to finance, but from what I understand, Robert's job was to broker deals in order to purchase debts that have been defaulted on that banks had and they didn't know what to do with them. Robert would work out deals where he would buy up those debts for a fraction of what they were worth. And he was apparently really good at doing this job. Eventually, a competing finance company called Merrill Lynch, also doing business in Hong Kong, became aware of Robert and how much of an asset he was in this industry. So they made him an offer that he simply could not refuse. He accepted the job, so he left Goldman Sachs and he went on to be making even more money in a higher ranking position for a job he didn't even look for. The job came looking for him, of course. And he was able to stay put where he was in the Asian market of distressed debts, which it was saturated with as a result of an economic implosion in 1997 that was affecting South Korea, Thailand, Japan, and China. Sadly, though, as Robert's professional life in the world of finance was taking off into the stratosphere, his home life was in shambles. And it's heartbreaking because you really feel like you have this genuinely good guy. He's gifted and he was making it in life and he just wanted to be with and love his family. I don't know, sometimes it feels like men like Robert Kissel are so few and far between these days. And women like Nancy, they can just be so unbelievably oblivious. Okay, so I'm going to jump back in time a little bit again here and tell you the story of Andrew's life and his building of his own family. The first time the five members of the Kissel family, parents Bill and Elaine and kids Jane, Andrew and Robert, the first time they spent a vacation skiing in Stratton Mountain, Vermont was in 1962. They were sold on the place being the Kissel family vacation spot. So the following year, the family bought a house there. The Kissel's only daughter, Jane, she had been taking some ski lessons that were being taught by a gentleman by the name of Stevick Kenny. And there was another person who was frequently around. She wasn't taking ski lessons, but she was always there. It was a young woman named Haley Wolf. And from there, Jane and Haley had become friends. 
Haley actually lived at the base of Stratton Mountain, so she'd spend most of her afternoon skiing, pretty much every day when it was ski season. At the same time, Andrew Kissel and Stevick also became good friends. Haley was an excellent skier. She was fiercely competitive and had no time for anyone who couldn't keep up with her. Eventually, it would be at a social gathering that Haley was officially introduced to Jane's brother, Andrew. She was immediately attracted to him, and the feeling was mutual. Haley was tall, athletic, beautiful, and she came from a wealthy family. Her father was the CEO of an engineering company called Lewis Berger. Her uncle was an executive at Time Warner Communications. She, too, would later on attend business school, earning her master's in finance. Andrew and Haley would get married in 1992, some three years after younger brother Robert had married Nancy. After getting married, the next thing Andrew got into was he founded his own residential and commercial real estate management company called Hanrock Group. He had a business partner, but also little brother Robert had invested a half million dollars into the fledgling enterprise. Meanwhile, Haley was kind of sort of doing the same thing her brother-in-law Robert Kissel had been doing. She was a Wall Street go-getter. She was first hired with Merrill Lynch as an analyst. Then she took an offer with a brokerage house called Smith Barney, where she went into upper management. She quickly became one of the top Wall Street analysts and was often featured in articles and made appearances on cable news shows, including CNN and MSNBC. She was often mentioned and referred to in finance articles in the Times and the Wall Street Journal. She was very, very well known in the world of finance out of New York, very visible and very successful. Andrew and Haley Kissel were well on their way to being a Wall Street power couple. I will circle back to Andrew and Haley a little bit later. I want to get back to where I had originally left off from part one. I know it's been 45 minutes of me giving all this side stuff, but it's all important to the story. Okay, so to refresh your memories from part one, Robert Kissel had shared some disturbing suspicions about what his wife may be up to with his private investigator turned friend, Frank Shea. Robert was beginning to think that she was spiking his drinks. You see, after work, when Robert would get home, particularly when days were long and difficult. He liked to sit back in his living room, in his favorite chair, with some scotch, some very pricey scotch. But lately, he began thinking that the drink seemed to be hitting him harder and differently than it used to. Normally, he found the scotch to be very relaxing. But in the past few weeks, it was feeling as though he was getting completely drunk to the point where he could barely see straight, the room would be spinning, and it was unlike any feeling he'd ever had before after just one drink. His friend Frank told a man, stop drinking it and take some samples of that scotch bottle as well as some samples of your urine over to the local lab and have it checked out to see if it had indeed been spiked. Frank also told him that he needed to make an appointment with his attorney ASAP because who knows how something like this was going to affect the other aspects of his life when it came to work, his relationship with his children, especially if this was what Frank was thinking it was. He started thinking Robert's life was at risk. This might be some kind of poison. 
Robert had a hard time agreeing with Frank on that. His wife, Nancy, trying to kill him? How is it that they could have come to this point? Were things really that bad? It just couldn't be. Robert refused to believe it. But Frank, he could not be convinced that he was wrong. He kept making Robert promise that he would pay a visit to his local physician and have himself checked out to make sure that he was in good health. Robert told Frank that he would do it, but he never actually followed through. It just so happened that Frank had some business to take care of himself in Hong Kong. Even though he wasn't scheduled to go for several weeks, he decided to bump up his travel plans so he could come and talk to Robert face to face so he could see his friend for himself. Frank arrived in Hong Kong on September 3rd, 2003. The friends met up for dinner that night. Frank arrived in Hong Kong. Frank was really, really worried about his friend because he was sure that Nancy was trying to kill him. He's a former cop. He's a private investigator. And he's seen some stuff. So he knew what people were capable of. Robert was in this mindset that this is his wife that they're talking about. They have three beautiful children together. They've built a fulfilling, successful life. He's done nothing but love and cherish and worship his wife. But all Frank could say is, yeah, but she still carried on an affair with the cable guy who lives in a trailer. That's how insignificant her life with Robert had become to her. As the friends talked over dinner, Frank could see that he was starting to get Robert to see what he was seeing. But Robert still wasn't quite there yet. But he was acknowledging that there was something way off between himself and Nancy. Frank asked about getting the scotch tested. Robert admitted that he had some samples hidden in his office, but he had yet taken them to any local labs to get tested. Clearly, Robert was wanting to linger in this state of denial. As long as he doesn't know, as long as he doesn't get those substances tested, then he hasn't proven that Nancy is up to something nefarious. But if he gets the stuff tested and he finds out that the drink has been spiked, then he's going to have to face the cold, hard truth that his wife was trying to poison him. Frank pushed Robert. Get those substances tested as soon as possible. But he could tell that when Robert told him that he would do it, he probably wasn't going to. Robert just wasn't ready to be confronted with the truth. The sad truth of it all is that Robert Kissel was still hopelessly in love with Nancy. And in his talks with Frank, he made no qualms about it. He was still willing to do just about anything to make Nancy happy, even if that meant moving out of their place there in Hong Kong and bringing Mike in to be with her. At least that way, they could still be in the same geographic area and he could still see his kids and sometimes Nancy. The fact of the matter was, he was so worried about losing his kids in the event of a divorce he absolutely just could not live with that, so he was willing to do anything to prevent Nancy from taking his children away from him and putting them all through the ravages of an acrimonious, painful divorce. There was also still a small part of Robert that thought that there might be a chance that he and Nancy could work through their problems. Even though there had been lots of turmoil, 
they still had flickers of happiness and togetherness, though few and far between. Those were the moments that Robert was holding on to, hoping that there would eventually be that spark that would light the fire. Whatever the case was going to be, Robert was pretty much in the mindset that he would give Nancy anything that she wanted. He would do whatever she asked. And really, it just made Frank sad to see his friend in such a desperate situation. Because at the end of the day, Frank really, really cared about Robert. Robert was one of the kindest, most genuine people that he had ever come to know. Robert cared about people, no matter who they were, what they were worth, or what they could do for him or not do for him. He treated everyone with the same respect, regardless. And he was a man who really loved and adored his family. It was a rare thing for Frank in his line of work to be able to say with 100% certainty that he could count Robert as one of the best human beings that he had ever come to know. So dreamers, before we move further on in Robert and Nancy's timeline, let me jump back to Andrew and Haley and catch you up to this period of time with the two of them. Remember where we had left off, Andrew had started his own real estate management company and Haley was making a pretty big name for herself as a Wall Street analyst. As the world rang in the new millennium, it felt as though nothing could stop Andrew and Haley. They were making money hand over fist. And considering how difficult it seemed things came to Andrew, he should have considered himself one lucky man, especially having found himself a wife. That if you really pull back and look at the optics of it all, his wife was kind of like his brother. They were in the same line of work. They even had at different times worked for the same company probably at the same time, actually, now that I think about it. They were equally as successful and charismatic. And in a strange way, it was as if Andrew had married the female counterpart of the sibling that he had rivaled his entire life. But for right now, I'm going to tell you about a player in the story, a gentleman by the name of Michael Assail. He was slightly older than the Kissels at the time, but because he was a bit of a man that was small in stature. He was thin and athletic. He surprised people when they found out he was actually 57 years old at this time. Like several others in the story, Michael was a finance guy. He too graduated from business school. He lived in a 20-story high-rise co-op apartment. What is a co-op apartment? Well, that's a good question. As mentioned many times before throughout many of the episodes in this podcast, I know nothing. According to apartmentguide.com, cooperative housing is a situation where you buy in to become a part owner of the entire piece of property. When you purchase into a co-op, you become a shareholder in a corporation that owns the property. And as a shareholder, you are entitled to exclusive use of a housing unit in that property. In other words, instead of just owning one unit in the building, you become a part owner of the entire building and that gives you the right to live on the property in any available apartment. So you end up sharing in all the costs with the other owners. You pay part of the mortgage and the maintenance and the property taxes and all of that is broken down evenly amongst everyone who is part owner. So the building that Michael Assail lived in was located in New York on 74th Street, and he had been residing there ever since 1972. 
So he pops up in our story here. It's 2002. So it's a good 30 years that this guy has been part owner of this apartment complex. The building had actually turned into a co-op about nine years after he moved in, and he was a member of the first set of board of directors that formed at the time. Well, what does Michael and his building have to do with our story? I'll tell you. By 2002, Andrew Kissel was part owner, and he was the treasurer of the board of directors. And you see, each month, every owner received a monthly statement related to the ownership of the building. At some point, when Michael began taking a closer look at his statements, there were some things that stood out to him that didn't seem to make much sense. Some questionable things that piqued his curiosity. Remember, Michael is a finance guy. This is his home. This is his investment. He'd been there for 30 years. And on top of that, Michael was a certified public accountant. So it's easy to see why he and any other owner, for that matter, would be curious about their investments and scrutinizing the numbers. Something seemed a bit off. And with that, with Michael deciding to take a closer look at his co-op statements, it would mark the very first look into what would turn out to be some of the more serious shortcuts Andrew Kissel was beginning to take in his professional life. In fact, this would be the first glimpse that we are going to be getting into the criminal side of Andrew Kissel. As mentioned, Michael Assail was one of the original members of the board of directors. He had also served as treasurer and he eventually ascended to vice president and then president. But eventually he decided to not throw his hat into the election. Came time for the board to reelect and elect new board members in the mid 80s. Obviously, knowing what we know about real estate, the property value of the co-op skyrocketed during this time. So it was a very prosperous and successful time for Michael during his tenure. Andrew and Haley Kissel moved into the co-op in 1992, becoming neighbors with Michael Assail. At the time, Andrew was working for a property management company located in Manhattan, but his job was a relatively low-level position. Anyway, Michael and Andrew didn't actually come to know one another until about three years later when Andrew showed up at the yearly shareholders assembly for the first time. I don't know why Andrew didn't bother to show up to any of the previous annual gatherings, but that kind of sort of just seems to be his speed. But when he finally did, he met Michael. And interestingly enough, Andrew was already the treasurer of the board of directors. So even more reason to wonder why Andrew failed to show up at any of the previous meetings. But then from what I've said about Andrew, like back when he was in Boston University, he failed to communicate with his family then. He just didn't seem to want to deal with certain things, certain people, certain responsibilities, even though he was the treasurer. So the very first hint that Michael got that Andrew Kissel was a shortcut taking kind of a guy. And it's a description of Andrew that we have used throughout this story thus far. It was when Andrew asked the building doorman if he would ask Michael a sale, if he would be willing to rent out his underground garage parking space to him. Now, I've never lived in New York, but 
The place is very, very crowded. It is the most populous city in the United States by more than double. I'm from the Los Angeles area. The city of Los Angeles has 3.9 million people in it. It's ranked second behind New York, which has 8.6 million people. So I can't even imagine, even coming from the most populated state in the nation, which is California, what it would be like to live in a city with more than 8 million people. So the buildings go upwards towards the sky and the parking. Yeah, that can go underground, but you can only do so much. And the thought of living and parking in New York, I'm shook just thinking about it. So this asking to be sublet a parking spot, it's like, who the hell do you think you are? Residents of the building must get on a waiting list for an underground parking space, plain and simple. That's just how they do it. And who knows how long the waiting list could have been with a 20 story building and all of those residents. And here goes Andrew Kissel trying to hustle himself up a parking space by circumventing the waiting list protocol. I was on a waiting list for a parking spot in an apartment building one time when I lived in Long Beach. Long Beach, if anybody is familiar with Southern California, you know that parking is a nightmare in Long Beach. But I'm sure it is nothing compared to New York City. But here goes Andrew trying to get around the rules. Michael politely turned Andrew down, but was horrendously offended that Andrew would think that he would give up such a coveted thing when there were people who had been on a waiting list for God knows how long. What an arrogant prick. A parking space might seem kind of petty, but putting that into perspective, you guys, 8.6 million people, parking is probably like gold. Anyway, the whole ordeal left Michael with a really sour taste in his mouth when it came to Andrew Kissel. And that, dreamers, was just the tip of the iceberg. Michael was beginning to notice an overall deterioration of the standards by which the building had been managed and maintained. The building employees were just not working to the same standards as they once were. There was more of a turnover than there ever had been, and the new people were just rude in general. The place was looking run down. The upkeep was lacking. It was kind of cluttered and dirty. Litter was not being picked up around the premises. Things were left in disrepair far longer than they should have been. Michael Sale had been there for so long that the way the management was handling the building was incredibly obvious to him. The standards had dropped drastically. In already having formed a not-so-good opinion about the treasurer of the board, Andrew, Michael, he began taking a closer look at Andrew's background and his qualifications to see if maybe there was something that he could address or possibly attribute the decline of the property to. According to Andrew's information on the building's website, he was listed as having a master's degree in business from New York University. And that, Dreamers, as we know, isn't true. It was his brother, Robert, who earned the business degree from the New York University. His biography also said that Andrew was in charge of the management of more than 4,000 units across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. That's what they call the tri-state area. And the word around the building was that Andrew often told people that his personal net worth hovered around $20 million. 
So with all that information, Michael came to the conclusion that something wasn't right. If this is a man with that kind of net worth in charge of thousands of apartments and is that highly educated, how come the place where Andrew actually calls home is turning into a pigsty? Andrew Kissel should be a man who wanted the best and expected the best. So this shoddy care and maintenance just didn't add up. Something must not be right with Andrew Kissel. As time wore on, Andrew Kissel only managed to get under Michael Assail's skin even more. And this included other neighbors as well. In 1996 and again in 1999, Andrew purchased a couple of more adjoining apartments in the building with the intentions of pretty much renovating the three apartments into one, which would take an extensive amount of construction. Now, granted, we know from Andrew's 16th birthday, sky's the limit on daddy's credit card purchase of that fur coat, that Andrew has always had exquisite taste. So he spared no expense to make sure that every single fixture, every nook and cranny of this apartment was the best of the best that money could buy. Some of the residents were impressed. When all was said and done, Andrew and Haley were sure to have the finest apartment in the building. But then others, like Michael, really didn't see the point of undertaking such extensive construction why not just go buy a bigger place somewhere else and spare yourself all this grief? Not to mention all the annoyance that the noise from the construction was causing too. What Andrew was doing simply wasn't the way people normally did things. When you want a bigger place, you buy a bigger place. You don't puzzle piece together rando apartments like this. But whatever, it was just another thing for Michael Assail to dislike about Andrew. And by 2002, Michael decided that he had had enough and it was time for him to see himself back onto the board of directors. He threw his hat into the election and easily garnered enough votes to take the seat as secretary. And this takes us back to what was first raising Michael's curiosity, those monthly statements for the building that I had mentioned earlier. There had been one drastic change that he had taken notice of during the Andrew Kissel tenure as treasurer. There was money that had been allotted to what was listed as annual improvements of the common areas in the building. This would include walkways, lobbies, halls, elevators, staircases, you know, the communal places that everyone uses when they come and go from their apartments. In 1998, they were spending approximately $47,000 a year to maintain those areas. However, in just a span of three years, that amount being spent jumped to $1.4 million. That's 30 times the amount that they used to pay, and that is a huge jump in maintenance costs. And the residents were all sharing in the footing of the bill. In addition to that, you know Michael had been keeping his eye on the condition of the building and it was abundantly clear to him that there was not $1.4 million worth of work being done anywhere in that building. Well, with maybe the exception of the Kissel residence. So now that Michael was back on the board of directors, he was going to lead the charge in investigating the shady accounting that was going on while Andrew was treasurer. 
Now, the book, A Family Cursed, it goes into great detail when it comes to all of the ducking and dodging and maneuvering that Andrew was doing as he was being asked to explain the questionable finances of the building. I'm going to try to dumb it down as simply as possible because I do not clearly understand all the various tactics that Andrew utilized to try to cover up his misdeeds. So I'm going to try to keep it simple. When Andrew was asked to provide the various statements for the building, he was usually peppered with emails until he finally decided to respond. When he did provide paperwork, there was a lot of confusion. There were wrong dates, wrong years, missing information, and tricky terminology. Andrew would provide documents that the board didn't ask for, statements for things other than the official bank statements related to the property. And Andrew would explain it as a clerical error or he didn't know what the correct document that they were looking for was. There were expenditures being listed in these statements that should not have been. There were items that did not need to be included on these documents that he was providing. It was like filler. It was junk. Then they asked for an itemized list of all of the improvements that were paid for during the time that Andrew was treasurer. When, when they were provided with those documents, again, so many things were missing and it hardly added up to what was said was being spent. The board continued to pester for a complete list, but an agent representing Andrew assured them that everything was on the up and up and that all the vendors had been paid in full. As if they were supposed to simply take this person's word for it, right? The board wanted to know why these payments weren't logged on the books, and they were told that Andrew Kissel paid everyone by wire transfer. Michael knew that this was absolutely not the standard operating procedure and saw it as nothing more than a cover-up tactic. Vendors are always paid by check. There needs to be a paper trail for issues exactly like this one. By the end of 2002, Michael was emailing everyone on the board and telling them that their financial situation was not looking very good. Andrew tried reaching out to Michael via email, asking him to hold off on sending everything over to the board of directors because doing so would be, quote unquote, unproductive. But Michael just saw this as another way of Andrew trying to stall everything. By February of 2003, the co-op's finance committee contacted the board of directors and demanded to see all of the invoices for the improvements because they were launching an audit. Andrew was asked to turn over all the invoices, but he said that they were not in his possession. He did not have access to them. All of that paperwork had been cycled out and placed into storage somewhere in New Jersey. And on top of that, he expressed his disbelief at the way that he was being treated after dedicating himself to the board as treasurer for five years. By then, Michael was sure that Andrew was aware that all of his creative accounting was being uncovered, and soon he was going to find himself in a heap of trouble. Eventually, an outside firm was hired to conduct the audit and investigation, and as soon as they began looking at the books, they could see that nothing about what they were looking at made any kinds of sense. They wanted to work directly with the accountant to try and clear things up, but Andrew continued to stand between the accounting firm and their in-house accountant. In fact, after being pressured, Andrew supplied the firm with a document that he said came directly from their accountant, and it reflected about $400,000 that had been put towards building improvements. 
But this document was not a thing that any accountant would have drafted. Michael was an accountant, and he knew the scope of the job, and this was not part of what they did. He immediately knew that Andrew had created that document himself, copying the statement directly onto a piece of paper that had the accountant's letterhead printed on it. It was that old school copy and paste. The board of directors continued to press Andrew for the appropriate documentation with an itemized breakdown of the building improvements. So Andrew came up with another manufactured document that listed nearly $600,000 of what had been as reclassified improvements. Sounds like fancy BS, right? So the documents, of course, they made no sense. But Andrew was claiming that this is where all the money went for these improvements. Whatever Andrew was trying to do, Michael assumed that he was just hoping everyone would just give up, but he was mistaken. They kept pressuring and insisting that Andrew come up with some legit answers to all of their questions. Next, Andrew tried dropping off a large bundle of paperwork that he said outlined and documented all of the upgrades and improvements made to the building. But one look at this pile of paperwork and anyone with any experience in accounting would be laughing their ass off at the ridiculousness of what Andrew had turned over to them. It was simply a pile of rubbish. Eventually, the board hired a real estate attorney and sent the attorney after Andrew. By this time, Andrew wasn't even living at the co-op anymore. He had retreated to the Stratton Mountain Vacation Home. Haley was still at the apartment because the kids were in school. She just couldn't up and leave. The attorney called Andrew and laid out all the evidence that had been compiled that demonstrated Andrew's financial transgressions. And there was a lot of damning evidence. By March of 2003, the board had sent out messages to everyone involved exactly what they had found regarding Andrew's misconduct as their treasurer. On March 12, 2003, Andrew resigned from the board of directors. And within days of that, he issued a $1 million payment to the board to cover what he had done. Andrew Kissel would never set foot in that co-op apartment ever again. However, it wasn't over. Andrew wasn't going to be able to just throw a million dollars at his problems and that it would simply go away. He had siphoned off way more than that. When the investigation was finally complete, the total was more than four times that. $4.7 million to be exact. $1 million was just a drop in the bucket. Everyone lawyered up and within six months or so, it looked like Andrew and the board were going to be able to reach a deal. Andrew pays back all of the money, and in return, he's off the hook civilly. In other words, he can't be sued by anyone else. That would mean that he would most likely not be prosecuted criminally either. And the board was okay with that because, as the way they saw it, they needed Andrew to be out and free and working in order to pay them back. If he was prosecuted criminally, they'd never see their money because the man would never work any kind of job where he'd be able to settle the exorbitant amount that he had owed. On top of that, any money Andrew did still have, it would either all go to attorneys or he could try to hide his assets. They decided that they would rather recover the money. And by the way, just because the board was looking as though they were not going to file any kind of criminal complaint against Andrew, that didn't mean that he was free and clear of being charged by the district attorney directly. They didn't need anyone to file a complaint about a crime in order to prosecute a crime. They could do it on their own if authorities knew about it and investigated it. 
but really the board didn't want any kind of scandal hovering over them and their property. It could prove to be detrimental. They could lose money. They could lose property value. Their reputations would be in tatters. They just didn't want all of that negative publicity. And in the wake of all this, dreamers, Andrew Kissel would carry on. It was as if he didn't even skip a beat. He would continue to indulge in his favorite pastime, which was collecting muscle cars, eventually acquiring 17 of them. He purchased a $3 million yacht that he kept in Florida. He also did something similar with having a jet that he did with the co-op apartment. He entered into a fractional ownership, so he could basically say that he had a private jet. And another thing Andrew kept up with is he regularly contributed to political campaigns, both Democratic and Republican, at all levels of government. If I had to guess, he felt it was important to have politicians in his pocket. And he strikes me as the kind of guy who could probably use all the help that he could get or buy, as it were. Okay, we are going to leave this off here for right now. What have we got done thus far? We have Robert Kissel over in Hong Kong dealing with his wife's infidelity and the suspicion that she is trying to drug him or poison him. And as for Andrew Kissel, we've got our first glimpse into his financial crimes. I hope you guys are keeping up with me here. I know these are really two cases running in tandem, and I'm trying to keep the timeline moving along as best I can without losing you or losing focus, and I hope it's working. That's why I'm doing these in quick succession. Part three of this series will be available very soon. I'm really invested in the story, so I'm trying to keep it going here. So hang in there. We will pick up each of these brothers' timelines in part three. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Don't forget to listen to the promo at the end of this from Mike Morford for his podcast, Missing Persons. And until next time, sweet dreams. It's estimated that at any given time, there are up to 90,000 missing persons, and that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? This is Missing Persons, and I'm your co-host, Mike Morford. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing, as well as the efforts to find them. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases... It's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. In each episode, you'll hear from someone that's desperately searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the struggle to find answers is real. Will you join us and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons wherever you listen to podcasts. 
There are dozens of episodes available to binge on right now, and new episodes come out every other Saturday. 